a good morning, church. Uh, the scriptures for today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And if you have a pew Bible, it is on page 1021. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade its, itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not or provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believe all things, hope all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there be prophecy, they will fail, or whether there are tongues, they will cease, or whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. May God have the reading, the blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. We were encouraged to hear from Santino Har this past week. Uh, he called in just to say hello to the church family and wanted me to pass that on to you. But then also we uh, saw a post from Daniel Nordstrom that uh, they spent a little bit of time together, he and Don and Santino, uh, while they were there in South Africa. And uh, you remember that it has been a good while since Santino was able to see his wife and children, and so he was very thankful for that. But then as he went back into the village uh, that he had not been back to for many, many years, he was able to see a brother and cousins and some relatives that he had not seen in many, many years. And so Daniel uh, described this scene, and, and I just want to read this to you uh, so we can rejoice with him. Uh, Daniel said, back in Juba, after a great visit to Bajak, and sh just shared a meal with Santino Har. It has been 18 years since he left South Sudan. I can't adequately describe how joyful he was to see his brother and cousin since they were little boys. The reunion involved four bear hugs interrupted by enthusiastic handshakes I don't think Santino stopped smiling the entire time except when he was enjoying fish from the Nile River. We're thankful that he's able to see his family and even his extended family that he's not seen for quite some time. We want to continue to pray for him and for his wife and children that they will soon be able to come here and be with him in the United States. We also want to continue to be mindful as Don and Daniel will finish their last leg of their trip uh, to take care of several different areas of mission work there in South Sudan. And so let's continue to pray for them as they'll return home. Uh, very soon. Also, we are mindful of the topic that really we began a couple of weeks ago, but we also are doing the second part of what will be a three or four part lesson as we study love. Love is so easy to misunderstand. 
You see, the challenge is in our society today, the way we use love in our English language so oftentimes is not at all the way God commands love. It's not that those other things don't exist. There is a type of feeling and emotion, but that's not the love that we read about in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. The love that is not only described, but it is commanded from God for us to practice. In other words, this text that has been capably read, what we read was not necessarily a definition of love, but it was 15 descriptions where God through Paul is saying, let me describe to you what love might look like. In other words, in our English, they're usually recorded in adjectives, but in the original Greek, they're all 15 verbs. In other words, it's saying that if we're going to practice this agape, these are the things that we will make a decision, it's a choice, we'll make a decision to do these things. And if we'll do these things, we'll be doing the loving things. We will be practicing agape. If we choose not to do these things, it will not be love that motivates us to do those things. Now, speaking of the motive, remember a couple of weeks ago, we studied the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians 13. And over and over, we are told that love should be the motive of why we do everything. And from that, we concluded that life minus love equals nothing. It's a zero. And so we want to learn this love not only so that we can practice it, but here's what our desire ought to be. This is what our mark ought to be. We want to practice this love in everything we do. When we set out to do good, the motive ought to be this love. When we're dealing with a difficult situation, as 1 Corinthians 13, we've studied problem after problem. To deal with difficult situations, we ought to deal with them with the motive being love. In every relationship that we share, whether it's a close friend, a family member, an extended whoever, a co-worker, even an enemy, the way we treat them ought to be love and the motive behind why we would do that ought to be love. With that in mind, it's challenging because the truth is if we could get this exactly right, we would be perfect. As a matter of fact, I like to think of 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, that verse 4 through the first part of verse 8 that we just read. I like to think about Paul having a, a canvas here and saying, let me draw a portrait for you. And sitting over here for the portrait is none other than Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm not going to paint a portrait. I'm going to use verbal expressions to paint this portrait of Jesus and these 15 expressions, these descriptions, describe Jesus. Jesus practiced all of these things that we've just read perfectly. So when we're looking at these and we're studying them and we're saying they're hard to do, they're hard to understand perhaps at times, they're hard to live out, Jesus is that perfect example. And so yes, we should become students of love. What is it that God wants us to do? In other words, that's why I should be a student of it. I need to learn it because I can't do it if I don't know it. So I learn it, then I make a decision. How am I going to implement this into my life? And then if it helps clarify that, well, to have the goal that says, I want to learn Jesus. The more I learn Jesus, Jesus, the better I understand love. The better I understand love, the better I understand why Jesus did the things he did in the way that he did them. 
And so it's a beautiful merging here of, of studies, a study of Jesus, but as well as a study of love. In this particular study that we're doing for a few weeks, we will reference Jesus from time to time, but we will not have the time uh, to go into depth how Jesus lived out each one of those. But I'd encourage you to think about that and study that even on your own. The first of these, as we look on the next slide, is 1 Corinthians 13 and 4. Love suffers long and is kind. We studied that last week, the idea that oftentimes to fulfill this love will take us out of our comfort zone, will literally be willing to suffer pain. And because of that, we talked about the fact that the standard in our life cannot be happiness. It's fine for us to be happy. And I would even suggest to you that God created us to be happy. Laughter is medicine for the soul, the holy word of God says. But when it comes to the standard, how am I going to decide what to do in this particular situation? A pursuit of happiness cannot be the standard that guides me. Holiness, a pursuit of holiness must be the standard that guides me. And sometime to do the holy thing, as we see right here, we will have to suffer long. And then the next thing that he says is, and be kind. And we talked about last week, that kindness is not just let me do something good for you, which that is also good for Christians to do, but that's not the way it's used here. The kindness he's using here is a merciful kindness. The Old Testament word, the way it's oftentimes brought into English, is loving kindness, and it literally has to do with a spirit that says, okay, you've just hurt me, that's long-suffering, and is kind, you've just hurt me, I'm going to suffer long, and I'm going to search for something I could do for you now at this point that would be beneficial to us, to you. And is kind. That's the way kindness is used there. It's a merciful kindness. But now let's go right into this next one. Look at the third one there. And we'll try to look at the, the next three in this same verse four. Notice it says, love does not envy. And so you and I, if we're going to practice love, we will make a decision to not envy other people. I'm sure some of you had a very similar experience that I had growing up. Anytime me or my sister would show any signs of jealousy, mom would say, I see the green-eyed monster rearing its head. Now we think about this jealousy and envy and we think about, well, how serious is it? Well, let's think about just the beginning of the Bible. You open up to Genesis, the third chapter. And you can make an argument, and if you want to debate this, I'm cool if you don't agree with this, but I'm just saying I think you can make an argument that there was a, kind of strange to us, but there was a type of jealousy in Eve that she wanted, if God knew the, the, the difference in good and evil, she wanted to be like God. I want that too. Almost like if you have it, I deserve it. And so she took of that fruit. We go to the very next chapter. God accepted Abel and his sacrifice, but God did not accept Cain and his sacrifice. And so how did Cain handle that situation? The best we can tell, he handled it through jealousy. He went out to the field and he killed his brother. And then later, just a few pages over in Genesis, we see Joseph and his brothers. Well, you remember the favoritism that Joseph's father showed to Joseph was temptation to fuel envy and jealousy for the brothers against Joseph. So what did they do? They threw him in a pit. 
Some of them were even willing to kill him, but they finally decided that in their jealousy and envy, they wouldn't kill him, but they would sell him for him to be a slave the rest of his life and then go back and tell the father that a wild beast had killed your son, the prodigal son. Jesus tells a story about a boy that was dead and is now alive. He is lost and he is now found. And there's a great celebration because this good event is happening. Who would not celebrate in this good event? Well, he paints the picture of an elder brother who's standing at the back, on the back porch or in the backyard of the house. He wouldn't celebrate. Why? Well, he tells the father why. He says, you've never invited my friends over and even killed a goat. Now, my brother who has wasted your inheritance with prostitutes is at home and you've killed the fatted calf and you've invited all the friends over. What do you see? The green-eyed monster has reared its head. Jealousy. I'm not going to go in and celebrate with him. But don't you realize this is a difference in life and death. I'm not going to go in and celebrate. I don't care if he was dead and now he's alive. I don't care if, if he was lost and he's now saved. I am what? I'm jealous. How powerful is jealousy? The most wicked deed man has ever done was crucifying the only perfect man who has ever lived. And we don't have to guess why the Jews were willing for Jesus to die. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew, the 27th chapter. Matthew, the 27th chapter. Look at this simple verse as we think about the topic of the moment of envy. This is what the scriptures say of Matthew 27 and 18. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. How serious is jealousy. How detrimental can envy and jealousy be? Listen, I'm not asking you to conclude based on how you feel about envy or jealousy. I'm asking you for just a moment to go back to the Holy Word of God. We have just referred to several stories and to several verses of the Holy Word of God. And did you notice that how much was in common? Envy will lead people to hatred that will lead people to being willing to murder people. Do you realize how many people have lost their life because someone was jealous or envious of them? That kind of hatred ruins not only relationships, but it ruins souls. It leaves a person not in a right standing with God. Because you say, God, what do you want of me? I want you to love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I want you to love others as yourself. Okay, what if I'm envious? Well, notice the passage you're reading in. You're, pass you're reading a passage that are descriptions of love. And so if we do not practice this, we're not practicing love. And so if we practice envy, we're not practicing love. Proverbs the 14th chapter and verse 30 gives insight. Proverbs 14 and 30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. 
Now think about what the bones are. The bones are the skeletal system. It's what supports you. Imagine right now if your body only had the, the flesh and the muscles, it would not be anything about it that could support it or, or hold it up. So it's interesting that it immediately goes to the structure, that that holds up, maintains the integrity, and then he goes to what eats away the integrity. He says, envy is like rottenness to the bone. Now, we see these pictures. We see what rottenness looks like in fruit or in vegetables. We see what it looks like even in teeth. Now, the truth is, as you can guess, the first thing I googled was rottenness of the bones. And the medical pictures were so disgusting, I just couldn't put them before you right now. It's horrible to see open flesh wounds that go into bones that are rottening. Isn't it interesting that the way God described envy is so disgusting that we have problems picturing it and accepting it. Let's have that same feeling toward envy. Let's not accept it. Let's look within our own self and say that if I'm dealing with jealousy and envy, I need to deal with it, I need to get rid of it, and I need, how can you solve it? Well, envy is hatred, so love is the cure for envy. Envy looks at someone that has something and says, I want what you have. And as it stirs and grows and develops, it starts saying, not only do I want what you have, I don't want you to have it and I only want to have it. And so all of a sudden, it's not just about what you have, but then there's those malicious thoughts that begin to have. You shouldn't have it. I think less of you because you have it. And things just spiral out of control to the point that a brother would go and murder his own brother or a set of brothers would throw their brother into a pit and sell him. Or a mob of people would take the only perfect person that's ever lived that had only done good to them and they would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. What is that? It's rottenness of the bones of the soul. Yes, it will hurt other people, but it really hurts us. It is that rot to the bones. In 1 Samuel, the 20th chapter, you remember David was a young man and he was growing in popularity among the people. The king was Saul and king's son, Jonathan, would be the natural heir to the throne. But it was becoming very obvious that David was going to be the heir to the throne. Now who in that scenario ought to be jealous if anybody should be? If anybody should have the temptation of jealousy, it should have been Jonathan. And then you say, why was he never jealous of David? Now, if you haven't pondered that, it's worth pondering. It looks like the kingdom ought to be yours. Now your friend is going to have it. Why wasn't he jealous? Look at this verse right here in verse 17. It tells why. Now, Jonathan again calls David to vow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Friends, that's what cures jealousy. To make decisions that says, I'm going to do what's right and best for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm not going to harbor these thoughts and let things spiral out of control and start feeding that jealousy that otherwise could happen. But yet his father couldn't do that. Later in the same chapter, we read there in the 20th chapter in verse 31, where he says, this is Saul speaking to his son Jonathan. He says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. 
Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Notice again, jealousy and envy is involved, and what now is about to happen? He wants him to die. Well, Jonathan doesn't want to have any part in this. So what's the very next verse? The very next two verses, he throws a spear at his own son. And so his son wisely draws the conclusion, I better go back and warn David. It's pretty obvious that my father would kill him. How powerful is envy? Now before we move on from this, I just want to bring it home to real life, okay? I'll start on these toes and we'll just work our way around. How are you going to deal with it? When somebody at work does exactly what you do, but it's obvious, they do it a lot better. The choice is yours. You can envy them. You can grow jealous. You can find every way you can to criticize them and put them down some way thinking that's going to make you look better and it's going to make them look bad. But at the end of the day, you're the one with the cancer within and they're still doing whatever they do better than you. So what are you going to do? Your hobby, your sports, your intelligence, the ability to make friends. There will always be people around you and I that do those things better than we do. What are we going to do? Are we willing to love those who excel even better than our strengths? It's pretty easy to love those people that excel at our weaknesses because most of us admit our weaknesses. But it's a little bit tough when it's what you think you do well. I want to encourage you right now, if that hits really close to where you live, to make sure that you don't stop wrestling with this in prayer and in humble meditation. And you figure out a way to find in your heart that you can rejoice with those who rejoice. And you can give honor to those who deserve honor. And so when they truly do shine, instead of your first thought being, I've got to find something negative about this. What about when they shine, you can say, good job. I'm really thankful for you. And it be the truth. Brethren, we talked last week about how this congregation would be different if we truly learned to practice this love. Everybody in the community would see something very, very different about us. Our families would be very different if we learned how to practice this kind of love. You and I as individuals would be very different if we could perfectly practice 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 5, 6, and 7. None of us are perfect. We haven't arrived at that mark of perfection, of perfect love, but we must keep that before us and we must not settle and just throw up our hands and say, well, nobody else does that. Of course the world isn't going to love the way God has taught us to love. And then we say, well, I know other Christians and they don't do that. Of course none of us are perfect, but we must hold up this description that God gives as the standard and say, this is the way that I want to learn to love. And it is going to be an education. We're going to have to learn it. And it is going to require a lot of sacrifice from time to time. But it's worth it.
Notice the next one, 1 Corinthians 13. We've seen that we, in this type of love, it makes, us a, it makes the choice to suffer long. It makes the choice to be mercifully kind. It makes the choice to not envy. But then it does not parade itself. That's an interesting thing. On this next slide, we see a picture on the bottom left-hand corner. We see a picture of a parade. And I would think that most all of us here have been at a parade. You know the idea of a parade. You go as someone in the audience, perhaps, to a parade. And what do you expect? You expect the entries to come by, and they are parading themselves for you to see because that's the way parades work. Hey, let's see this float. Let's see this band. Let's see whoever it is that's won this competition. Oh, that's neat. That's neat. Well, that is neat when it's in that traditional sense of a parade. But you know what's not neat? Some people live their life like that. They parade their life. Hey, have you noticed me lately? Let me tell you about how good I am. And it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of just the opposite of envy. Envy is where we struggle looking at someone to say, hey, I really want what you have. Parading oneself is kind of the opposite. It's where it says, hey, I'm going to try to make myself look so good that you are going to be envious of me. Before I get done prating myself, you're going to want to be me. You're going to want my life. You're going to want what I am and what I have. And so we begin this parade. And the whole purpose of it is, look at me. And what's meant by that is, I'm probably doing this better than you. And then we start to make even excuses or justifications for it. How many times have you seen the one like in the bottom right-hand corner there? It ain't bragging if you can do it. The last time I checked, that is the only way you can brag. Because if you can't do it, it's not bragging, it's called lying. And so the only way you can brag is if you can do it. And bragging is about parading oneself. Hey, look what I can do. And we know that there's no... Sin that is new. Nothing under the sun is new. But we do know that there are some temptations that may be greater for one generation than from the next. As I was looking for some research online about how things have changed in the last five to ten years in our willingness to accept bragging as a culture, I figured it had to be out there because if there's anything that's changed in the last five to ten years, it's our willingness to accept bragging as the norm. And so I just started doing a little research, and I'll just I'll throw this out just tongue-in-cheek. This is kind of funny. Well, here's a few quotes that came out of it, then I'll get to the research. Okay, here's tongue-in-cheek, though. I'm shocked that my constant bragging on Facebook about my fabulous life has led you to believe that I'm, I'm a narcissist. Or what about this one? Is bragging on Facebook about your workout a part of your workout? Or, yes, keep bragging 24-7 on your Facebook status about your oh-so-fantastic marriage because we really do want to hear more, said nobody ever. <laughs> There's a few more, but we'll pass on those. But on this next slide, you do see that um, the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago, took some research from Harvard and interviews from Columbia University. And 
obviously, I mean, I say it's obvious. If you've never stopped to think about it, we need to stop and think about it because just because culture accepts something absolutely does not mean that it's right. And so this is going to be a challenging part of the lesson today that what has become a cultural norm, is it right in the sight of God? And so this lady, she begins, and, and perhaps she's even a little bit sarcastic, Elizabeth uh, Bernstein, as, as she begins, she says, friends, family, and co-workers, I think you're fabulous, just not quite as fabulous as you think you are. And then she says, consider your latest folks Facebook status updates. Best gift ever from the best husband ever. Got my first royalty check for my book. Sunset sale turned into moonlight sale, shooting stars everywhere, perfect. And then she quits quoting and says, a benign reading would be that these are just typical daily updates. But folks, this is bragging. Whether you recognize it or not, and it's out of control, how did this happen to our culture? Is it going to get better? Culturally, it can't. And this goes on to talk about it because of the way we're raising our children. Changes in parenting style are going to play a significant role in this. Nowadays, every moment from every first, first day of school, etc., exhausted nap in the back seat of the car is documented. The problem is that these shared moments can, doesn't always have to be, can easily come off as crowing about, look how great our family is. Look how great our kids are. Look how great we are as a mom or dad. Harvard did a study about the part of the brain that responds to reward. They found out that the part that responds like a reward, like when we see food, and we know we get to eat that food, that part of the brain that responds, it's also the same part of the brain that responds to physical intimacy. That very same part of the brain is what also responds when people have the opportunity to talk about themselves. And so in their experiment, what they did was they gave people the opportunity to talk about others or talk about their self. And they even came up with this idea that you will be financially, <clears throat> financially rewarded. They actually got to keep the money, the participants did. And as the, the experiment went on, what they would do is they would gradually only offer the money if you talked about others, and you would get no financial reward if you talked about yourself. And the majority of people would choose to continue to talk about themselves even though the obvious at the moment was, I'm not going to get the financial reward. What does it say about us? I want to remind you what we're studying today. We're studying 1 Corinthians 13. That is a love that is this kingdom living. It's a, it's a mark, a high mark that we would seek to achieve to be spiritual. Our fleshly nature would never do this on its own. We can love the king and follow his teachings, which means we have to decide whether or not we believe it. Like today, the obvious in this lesson is, you will really have to decide, do you really believe bragging is wrong? Because I know in our culture today, and I'm not trying to, to be mean-spirited to say this, but I know there would be several in this room right now that would say, I just don't believe it's wrong. I get that. In our culture today, if that's what you grew up in, 
I get that you could easily say, I'm not buying this, but I, I'm just offering to you today, the Word of God teaches us a spiritual way to live. There is a fleshly and carnal way to live, and we have to decide which one are we going to love. First and greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what about loving God with your heart? Be not conformed to this world. Don't let the world shape you. Be you transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Are you going to learn what the Lord teaches and say, okay, that really is foreign to me, but I trust you, God. I trust you. I'll obey you. Or are we going to say, I'd rather love the world. Okay, if we love the world, what is the world? 1 John 2 and 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What's in the world? Lust the eye, lust the flesh, and what? Pride of life. We love by nature talking about ourselves. It doesn't make you a weirdo to say, I love talking about myself. It does make us carnal. It makes us fleshly. It doesn't make us strange or unusual. But it is not spiritual. And so it's interesting that this secular article, of course, doesn't dress it in that sense at all, but starts revealing the fact in Wall Street Journal and even studies at Harvard and etc. that there is a huge shift right now in America because primarily of that shift in social media. And one guy from Columbus University, he said, uh, his name's Keith uh, Wilcox. And he says, their opinion matters more, he says, adding that online, the unusual social norms of modesty do not necessarily hold. Now, do you, you see what he's saying there? He's saying in real life, we have social norms. The word modesty there, he's meaning, the, word, the root of modesty means appropriate. He's saying there are social norms that are appropriate. In other words, you don't just walk up to somebody face to face, and here's my fear. I'm going to go ahead and break out what my fear is. My concern is we're, not prob we're probably not that far away from it. I would say probably sometime in the next decade to 15 years, this will become the face to face norm. But right now, thankfully, we're not there. And so if someone took the way many people conduct themselves on social media, and they did that face to face, you would be offended. And you would probably then say, that's really odd. I mean, if a mother, right after service, just started walking around to all of you saying, isn't my baby the cutest today? Do you like him? Isn't, that, isn't this what? Did I tell you about our wonderful anniversary trip? Do you like it? We would be like, whoa. They have lost it. Like something's really... I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? And I know you're going to say, he's trying to be funny. I'm just trying to make a point. 10, 15 years, there literally could be preachers standing out in the foyer after the service and instead the occasional member coming by and saying, hey, great lesson. It'd be the preacher as you're approaching saying, hey, wasn't that a great sermon today? What about it? And you'd be like, you don't... You don't do that. Oh yeah. Facebook is full of it and everybody acts like it's the norm. Twitter is reigning with it and everybody acts like it's the norm. It's good to do that. No, it's just right now our fleshly nature only accepts that in social media. We're still not real comfortable with that face to face yet. But when a generation that that's all they have known 
from moment by moment look at us, how would they know to act any differently? And so what do we do with that? I'd like to read to you a verse out of God's holy word. And I'd like for you to put, get your phone out and put this on it. And I would like for you to really take and think about this. It's a very simple verse. Proverbs, the 27th chapter. Proverbs, the 27th chapter, in verse 2. Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, and not your own lips. Obviously, that's not the only passage in the Scripture that speaks about us not boasting on ourselves and not bragging and the dangers of pride. And we'll read several more in just real quick in just a minute. But I just want you to stop and meditate on that. Like, God made that pretty clear, didn't He? Hey, if there's something good said about you, leave it up to somebody else to say it. And I know, you know, if you've been born in the last 10 years, 15 years, you probably are thinking... Unless you've had godly parents that have taught you, you're probably thinking, I've never heard anything like that. You couldn't live today and not boast about yourself. That's, that's a big reason why we're on social media. We've got a problem. Because it's not just, hey, it's not healthy. But let's put it back in the context of the lesson today. It's not love. The people you're sending that out to, I didn't say this, God says... You don't love them. If you love them, you wouldn't try to make yourself look so good to impress them. Instead, you would humbly serve them. The next one in 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, and I promise you we're wrapping up here. If you'll just, we're on a downhill slide and we're going quick. Oh, let's, let's read this one. I listened to a sermon this past week on, on 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, and I loved a, a quote that one guy gave, and uh, it's back a couple of slides. He said, th think about bragging. And he says, empty trucks make the loudest noise. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been around equipment, but that is so true. You load something down, you don't hear anything. You get behind an empty trailer or truck, it just bounces and makes all kind of noise. People with an understanding of life and of wisdom, they don't make a lot of noise. They just go about loving and serving. And things that are empty, it's a lot of fanfare. Hey, you did catch me, right? I did tell you about my latest success, right? Hey, you haven't bragged on me lately. Do I need to brag on me more so you know what to brag on me about? Let's go on because the next one is kin to it. And he says it's not puffed up. When we look on this next slide in 1 Corinthians, the, fourth in 1 Corinthians, the, the word puffed up, those two words are used several times. And on the next slide, notice in 1 Corinthians 4 and 16, in verse 6, and then also in 18, he talks about how when we're puffed up, we're not going to love others. And even verse 18, he says, he's talking to them, and he says, you're not going to love me. Paul is saying that to them, as you should. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, and that puffed up, that arrogance, they were, they were accepting sin. And you say, why were they accepting sin? And Paul said, writing by inspiration, it's because you're puffed up. And then even in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1, the, the spiritually mature people were doing things to call the weaker ones to stumble, and he says the only reason you would do that is if you were puffed up. And, and so the idea is that, that we in our arrogance can actually come to the point that we are blinded to really what is the will of God. And we're even blinded to the beauty and the blessing that other people can be. 
and we really believe that we're the one that's beautiful and we're the one that's blessing everybody and really nobody else could really be a blessing to me, we can literally get that puff, puffed up. I'm the one that everybody ought to be looking to. And of course, I know that's an extreme case, but that's what he's talking about, the, the idea here in, in 1 Corinthians. And so notice, let's just read a few Proverbs as we go down and we'll close. Proverbs, the 8th chapter and verse 13. What's all this kind of arrogance and puffed up and, and uh, parading ourselves around? What does it all lead to? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. See, this is a question, do, do we hate it? Well, what is it? This evil is pride and arrogance and the evil way. And the perverse mouth, that mouth that would be arrogant and brag about themselves and all, he says, I hate it. All right, Proverbs 11 and verse 2. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. A Proverbs 13 and 10. By pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Proverbs 6 and 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or, let's sum this up as we come back to our home text, the book of 1 Corinthians, except let's go to the third chapter in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 3 and 3. For you are still carnal. See, we've talked about it. Are you going to be spiritual or are you going to be carnal? If you're still carnal, what are you? Where, for where you... For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You expect the fleshly nature to do that, but God's saying, I don't expect those that live a part of my kingdom to do that. So what do we learn today? Number one, envy will lead us to eye each other in a sinful way instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus and others in a loving way. Number two, we have all been to a parade, but some try to live one. Don't. Never boast. Number three, being puffed up will literally blind us spiritually. We will get to the point we can't see our own arrogance or sin. Number four, love is the choice to live without envy, without boasting, and without arrogance. How will you apply this lesson this week? We talked about a week ago. We're not studying this for academics. We're studying this to live it. How will we live out that kind of life without envy, without boasting, without parading ourselves, without being puffed up, truly loving God and loving others as we also love ourselves? If we can help you, Today, move closer to the Lord. We'd love to have that opportunity to walk with you. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, because you're a believer willing to repent of sins and confess before men, or if you've begun that journey, and along the way you've lost sight of that journey and you want to come back humbly, repenting of your sins, confessing those sins, praying forgiveness, we'd be honored to pray with you. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.